This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for tuning in, whether you are listening to us live or listening to the podcast. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great to see you. This is your first time in 2018, isn't it? Yes, yes. This is my first uh, week back in February, well, while we're still just on the edge yeah. of February. <laughs> I think it's the first time I've actually openly said it's 2018 and not 17. I've, <laughs> I've had trouble adjusting. I just feel like so, you see people and you actually haven't seen them all year yet and you're like, happy new February. <laughs> exactly. It feels a bit weird saying happy new year when you're uh, well into it. Dr. Ray, I've seen you this year. You have, Dr. Shane. But, in the but studio? In the studio, I think, yes. Yes. I was going to say we had lunch a few weeks back. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that New Year thing, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to say Happy New Year uh, to the students tomorrow because oh, it's the first day of class. First day of class, yeah. yeah. Were they here last week, though, in some sort of orientation? Or orientation week, and we had Science Expo before that. Yeah, because I, I noticed, uh, well, you know, you and I both at Melbourne Uni and the Grattan Street has been closed. Oh, yes. Which is, um, you know, every, every two minutes when you walk around, there's a, there's a, I reckon, about a 50% chance you'd get backed over by a front-end loader, which is pretty scary stuff. I um, just uh, saw all the queues outside all the pubs in Carlton and uh, thought, oh, must be uh, students back at uni. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, and they reopened um, the Prince Alfred on, on Gratton, which oh, is nice. PAs. Yeah, PAs oh, is back nice. open. A little bit upmarket now, though. I'm not sure I like oh, really? it. I prefer the sticky floor. Oh, um, just yeah. what I grew up with. But uh, yeah, the meal there the other day it wasn't bad so you know it's um you know all good but uh, anyway we're going to get into some science news first up we have two fantastic guests on today folks we're going to be talking about birds and antibiotics uh, during pregnancy um, but before we get to that um let's sort of have a look at the news of the week dr crystal over to you one news story that caught my eye this uh week was on one of my favorite topics which is archaeogenetics which is when archaeology meets genomics now that happens in a pub what? <laughs> they must. Those two groups must meet up in a pub because otherwise they... Yeah. Well, no, this is a really growing field to answer <laughs> awesome. some of the really important questions around around early human life and, 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 and how we became to be who we are. And and the question that um, that this, this news story set out to address was, where did modern horses come from? You know, how did humans domesticate horses? Because we have archaeological evidence um, from uh, the Bowtie culture uh, um, who, around, who domesticated horses sort of around... 5,000 years ago in um, what is now sort of North Kazakhstan. So you're talking kind of Central um, Asia. Um, and so there's lots of evidence from the archaeological sites that there was horse corrals and leather work and horse meat and horse milk found in pottery that said that, you know, this culture, the Bataille culture, um, domesticated horses more than 5,000 years ago. Um, but the, the most fascinating thing was that then you could actually take um, DNA out of some of those horse bones and teeth and do a genomic analysis and say, well, you know, if, if the current narrative around where horses came from is that they came from this um, Bataille culture and, and then maybe domesticated horses horses spread across Asia, Europe, um, you know, and then that's how we, you know, as a, as an, as a world, you know, domesticated horses, all from this one one place. Mm. Um, and so uh, so the, the research team um, uh, analysed 42 ancient horse genomes, half of which came from this Bataille cultural archaeological site, and um, the rest came from across the world, sort of in that 4,000 to 5,000-year-old bracket. And they said, well, how do they all relate? 
And the findings were actually really surprising when they looked at the the, the relationships at a genetic level. They actually found that um, domestic horses uh, found elsewhere in the globe bore very little um, genetic re- relationships to the bow tie horses. Sort of like they, you know, comparatively they're kind of only two point seven percent bow tie, which kind of suggested one of two things: either as those um, domesticated bow tie horses spread across the globe, they kind of got outbred when they kind mm-hmm. of went around, yep. or that um, the process of domesticating horses actually kind of happened all over the world. Like it wasn't right. a once-off event that spread, but it was actually something that could have been a long experimental process arising in different pockets across the globe, you know, with different successes and failures. Um which was kind of fascinating um, uh, to sort of think back now, well, what does that mean for, for us and, and, and how uh, we first established those relationships um, with, with our horses, which kind of led to increases in um, uh, agriculture and, and, and other um, human kind of uh, social and cultural advances. And the second thing that was really fascinating was that they um, compared some of these ancient horse genomes to modern horse genomes um, and they looked at what is thought to be the world's only wild horses, which are the... Um, Preswalski horses, which are um, a very rare and endangered species of horse out of Mongolia. And they were thought to be the world's only wild horses that are are left remaining. Um, And when they did the analysis, they actually found that these wild horses are actually directly descended from the Bowtie horses. Mm. Um, And so they actually think they're feral, so that they were once domesticated and then kind of escaped into the wild. (laughs) So they're not truly wild, even though they probably have been for the last sort of um, 4,000 years. Although how, you know, when, when you domesticate an animal over a period and that's through selective breeding and so forth over many generations how many generations does it take to actually get it back like can you completely undomesticate back to wild yes as opposed to ferals sort of like misbehaving you know for a couple of generations perhaps but but maybe 10 generations out in the wild just means all the domestication genes go Oh. So you get the diversity again that you but, but I think the point was is that they were still very closely genetically related. Yeah, and okay. I think that was the point, is yeah, that, so, that, that even yeah. though, though they, were, um, they, were, they were still wild, they were still maintaining a very strong um, f- uh, phylogenetic relationship to those ancient horse DNA mm-hmm. that had been extracted from mm-hmm. five and a half thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, so, so they are, um, in nature, they are wild horses, yeah. um, but they probably came from that uh, route, which kind of means there are no genuinely wild horses in the world. Yeah, they're, they're that's all a bit kind sad, of, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and what that means. But but I just think this is a, a wonderful um, topic and a really fascinating area because it, um, it's an area where both arts and science are required to answer fundamental questions. Mm. You need the mm. archaeology, you need the, the, the cultural and social history, um, as well as the science and the research and the genomics um, to come together to sort of be really powerful in addressing some of these fundamental questions about what makes us human. Yeah. I think one of my favourite all-time experiments is still going is the one with the wolves in... Um I think it's somewhere in, in, in the USSR, former USSR, where I think that the woman's name is Ludmina and she's been domesticating this set of wolves or splitting these wolves off for many, many years. And you can actually now buy these fully domesticated wolves in order to support this experiment. So wow. they And they choose them for... They don't send them, do you, do they? Oh, not in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, they've basically been selected for traits over now, I think it's something like 70 generations or something. So because it's been going about 70 years, this so experiment. She's, so she's, so, so the experiment is to essentially domesticate and get to a, a dog. Yeah, well, it's basically <laughs> selective breeding for mm. certain traits mm. over many, many 
um, you know, years. And so they have one litter per year. So 70 odd years is about 70 generations. And these, these animals now are like, you know, cuddly, you know, beautiful, you know, they're fantastic. And sorry, not wolves, they're foxes. And um, and they've they've domesticated these things, and they're incredible. They're incredible. But of course, there's also the other strain, which are extremely vicious, and the way they interact with humans, and the domestication specific to the way they interact with humans, mm. not with each other, mm. because we of course select traits relative to us, not relative to other animals. So it's just such a fascinating area. It blows me away how much you can do. And of course, you know, we, with with large animals like horses, I mean, the the period over which you could look at those things is very very long. Well, some of the limitations to this research is that there aren't a lot of um, uh, DNA samples in that mm. four thousand to five thousand yeah, yeah. year old period. How many period. generations are you looking yeah, at? Yeah, and, and so um, and so they're quite limited in, in what can be done. But uh, but I'm just still amazed that you can you know the first human the first horse genome was sequenced in two thousand and six. You know that when that was like wow we've sequenced the horse genome. Now it's like well yeah now we're sequen- now we're from sequencing dozens ago. of them yeah, from yeah. five thousand years yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it's That's just great stuff. it's just in you know in in ten or twelve years it's just incredible to see what yeah. science can do. That map. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Uh, Dr. Shane, it, would you believe it's, it's been quite, I've seen quite a lot of bee news this week. Oh, I've seen a few bees in my backyard, which is no, no. exciting. This is, this is two things. One of them uh, I just want to mention briefly because it was on ABC, so other people have probably seen it. What I knew Aus- I, I, Australia does an awful lot in biosecurity. I did oh, yeah. not know what Australia's best practice was in bee biosecurity, though. Oh, we don't have bumblebees here. No, no, no that, that's not it. It's, it's, it's their approach to bee biosecurity, particularly for the varora mite, which, of course, as you know, is the mite that can cause terrible hive collapse in bees, and Australia doesn't have it. It's this little mite that sits on the back of the neck of the bee and sucks out its blood and doesn't do wonders for the bee. So Australia does not want to get the varora mite. So we have sentinel hives protecting Australian ports. Hmm. So up, if you go down to a port site, you have to look around for it. You will eventually find a spot that might have some greenery and has a beehive there. And these beehives are there specifically to attract bees that come over on boats. Because infected bees that come over on boats, then how, how the vermite spreads is the bee gets picked up in the local hive and then the mite spreads. And so these hives have pest strips in them to actually stop and kill the mites, and they check them every six weeks. And that's actually Australia's biosecurity approach, is sentinel hives. Wow. That's great. I love it. That, that's fantastic. <laughs> and so I saw that. That was actually on ABC earlier this week, so I, I didn't want to spend too much time on it. But oh, that and not being allowed to bring honey into the country. Sure. Um, <laughs> is that true? Yeah, it's one of the things that you're not allowed to bring in when they, you have to check your form when you come back through. Yeah. Uh, why customs. would you? Why, why, why would you, you bother? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Also, interesting thing about counterfeiting, there's, if I think it's, there's 10x, 10 million tons of honey made a year, yet there's 12 million tons of honey that's sold a year. (laughs) So, providence for honey production (laughs) is is actually still quite a challenge. Anyway, there was also an interesting piece of research out of um, Germany on how beehives deal with fields. And they were actually studied, they surveyed 229 fields across four European countries to actually show that Wild bees came out in higher numbers uh, for po- and, 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 and hoverflies, so pollinators in, in general, for fields that had smaller field size that actually had borders. And they reckon that part of that is because they think the borders and the edges of the fields gave the bees um, safe passageways to get in and out of the fields um, and, and to, to actually get back to the hive. And so that by providing basically highways of safe travel, they were much more efficient 
at, at, at pollinating these fields. Now, the motivation for this study is there's a lot of discussion in, agri-farming, in agriculture right now about larger fields mm. and, and this balance of should we be farming larger fields. Mm. Um, there's advantages to that as well, but they were looking at it from a pollinator perspective where it seemed the smaller fields did better. The other thing was, and because there's a lot of discussion about biodiversity and growing a lot of different crops within a smaller area, what they actually found was that um, the performance of bees or their abundance around diversity of crops actually dropped a little. And they're a little unsure if that's, they're saying, well, that could be uh, actually when you have a lot of different crops, you bring in other, uh, a variety of pesticides and fertilizers for the different crops. So it may be something around that associated the reduced abundance for diversity. But so when you when you start to think about well, what are better ways to go farming in the forward in the future? Do we do large fields or not? This study is trying to kind of bring in a, a pollinator perspective of whether or not what should those strategies be. Yeah, cool so stuff. That, that was it's, and that's really nice. I mean, bees are so important. Like we've got to. They are. Yeah. Um, now, I want to talk about uh, an experiment that's uh, happening soon, which is um, when you hear the components of this experiment, I think it'll kind of blow you away. So basically, people are still looking at Einstein's theory of general relativity. And it's still being tested, and it's being tested in more and more extreme situations in the universe. So, you know, we, we do the local stuff. That's pretty good. Um, you know, we had the gravitational wave detection over the last few years and multiple times now, so that that's really nice. Um, but there's a new experiment that's actually been... It's about 16... Well actually probably about, you know, four billion years in the making, but for these uh, researchers, about six, 16 years in the making, and this is really interesting. So if you look at the centre of our galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole. And when I say supermassive, I mean, you know, generally bigger than you can imagine. So try to imagine the size of our sun or the mass of our sun. That's hard enough to imagine. And now think of something that's about 4.3 million of those. <laughs> Okay, so if you're getting a headache, don't worry, I think you should. Um, So that's basically the mass of this black hole. Now, not far from that black hole are a number of stars that actually um, orbit around that spot. So, you know, it's like any other large object, you can orbit around. In fact, you could argue our whole galaxy is sort of orbiting around that spot. It is the centre of the galaxy. Centre of the galaxy in Sagittarius A. And basically there is one particular star um, which has the designation S0-2 that is very important for testing Einstein's uh, theory of general relativity. And the reason for this is that it orbits around that um, that black hole about every 15 years or so. And at one point in its orbit, it comes very close, and then at other points, it's not so close. It's an elliptical orbit, you know, similar to ours. And so, and and this whole thing is about uh, just under 26,000 light years away, so that's about how far we are from the centre of the galaxy. So you've got this star orbiting around this this, uh, black hole, and because it experiences, uh, you know, basically um, the, the information coming to us from that star has to go through different amounts of gravity depending on where it is relative to us. What we would like to see is that all of the information coming to us, all the light and so forth, is redshifted. So it is, its, its wavelengths are all changed as a result of the gravity environment it's in. And this star is a great potential um, candidate for doing these measurements. And mid this year is when it will be in a place where we can do these measurements, which is super cool. Now, one of the um, sort of difficulties we've had with this star, because this star is not small, it's about, it has about 15 times the mass of our sun. So it's, you know, think about that again, that's, it's big. 
And there was concern that it was actually a binary system. So it was quite, it's quite a bright star. And usually when they're about this big, they're often binary systems. So as in two stars together in orbit around one another. And so that would make the calculations much more complex. Just makes it more complicated because it means there's something else tugging at everything the whole time. And so there's, there's more in there. Now, what they've recently managed to do, and this is why um, researchers are so excited now about this star, is they've pretty much determined that if there is a, a second star there, it's not above a certain size. So they've put an upper limit on it, and that upper limit is such that the experiments can be done quite readily. So mid this year, um, the um, University of um, California in LA and their Galactic Center Group, which imagine having that oh, name. Like, hi, I work at the that. Galactic Center. I'm the director of the Galactic, Galactic Center. Center Group. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you... Oh, the solar system group. Oh, good on you. Um, it's, oh, you're in a nano centre. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, nice. That's right. <laughs> so, so, wait, so when you say they're going to make measurements, what do so, you so use what, to measure? Well, so this is where basically um, they use our very large telescopes um, to, to monitor these, uh, these particular stars the light that comes from this star in the number of frequencies and they look at the changes that occur and if the right changes do occur and everyone expects this will be the case again this will confirm einstein's um, theory of general relativity in what can only be described as a very extreme environment in space so you know you're getting to that point where you're really pushing this to the to the edge one of the things i love about these um, observations though that determined that it wasn't a binary star so the you know it's just one star is that they're from um the Keck Observatory, which is um, is this great... I mean, this is an enormous telescope with um, a sort of spectrograph on it, so it determines what the star's made of. But it uses something called a guide star adaptive optics system. And I remember years back when I was first starting in research, I was in astrophysics group, and these things were just starting to be used. And what they do is they take this massive laser and they shoot it up into the atmosphere... And then they collect the light that comes back down. Now, remember, as that light comes back down, it gets distorted by the atmosphere. Now, the, the star's light gets distorted at the same time in the same way. And so they move and change the shape of the mirrors in the telescope to compensate for this, or they do it with software. And so effectively what they can do is use the telescope as though the atmosphere is not there, wow. which increases its resolution yeah. like substantially. These things are just gorgeous, but these these guide star lasers that they use are just enormous. Like they usually, you'll see sometimes a small house next to the telescope, and that's the the power, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but they're just amazing. So it it really is the combination of many different technologies coming together, and the the just chance that there is a very bright star right near this black hole at the centre of our galaxy. There are actually other stars there, but they're not as bright. And in fact, it's taken quite a while to work out that they were actually separate stars because they were difficult to see, but there's a few others there that they know of. There's about four or five that are very close. And when I say close, I mean... They're probably, you know, if you look at where our orbit of, say, Neptune is in our solar system, that's probably about a tenth of the distance <laughs> out to these things. So they're a fair way from this black hole. The other interesting part of this, of course, is that this star is kind of young. And the question is, how the hell do you form a star that close to a black hole? And that's a question no one knows. So there's there's a lot of really cool stuff coming out of this one little region of space with some of this interesting work from, of course, our great friends at the Galactic Centre Group.
In the studio now is Andrew Katsis. He is a behavioural ecologist from Deakin University. Andrew, welcome to the studios of Triple R. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, um, when we saw the information you sent through, I mean, I got excited. I know it probably doesn't affect us humans, but the idea of um, learning and that learning can occur before you're even born or, you know, briefly after and we pass on all this information. I mean, I didn't get anything from my parents in terms of genetic knowledge. I got nothing. I, I said to start from scratch. But you've been looking at the embryo um, for, for birds and how all this works. So, first of all, tell us about the bird that you've chosen for this research. This is a zebra finch. Why uh, the zebra finch? Well, the zebra finch is one of the most studied birds in the world. It's an Australian songbird. It's very small and it lives mm -hmm. across most of the mainland Australia. Uh, you don't see it all that much around Melbourne, but it does show up at Werribee at the Western Treatment Plant. But you're more likely to see it uh, in mainland in the arid areas and is in the centre of Australia. Okay. And, and what's unique about this bird? I mean, why, why is it the most studied bird? Like, why, why pick that bird? Just small and easy to deal with? It's or? not because it's cute, right? Uh, it is incredibly cute, but that's not the reason. <laughs> uh, basically, it goes back to the 1950s and 60s when researchers started using these birds in experiments and they found that if you put them into, if you brought them into captivity and put them in an aviary, they would start breeding very, very quickly. Mm, okay. uh, so they... they don't mind being in captivity. As soon as you give them nesting materials, they'll start going straight away. And once a lot of scientists started using these birds in their research, uh, that meant they became an excellent bird to continue studying because we already knew so much about them. Okay. And so when they breed, what's the incubation period for the eggs? Uh, it's about... It's about 10 or 10, 11 days. Okay. So now during that period, some interesting things happening, which is the, the focus of your research. Give us the rundown on that. Absolutely. Well, this discovery was made a couple of years ago uh, by my supervisors at Deakin University, so Malen Mariette and Kate Buchanan. And what was actually happening is they were making recordings in these uh, zebra finch nests uh, to see what sort of sounds the parents made as they were sitting on the eggs. Mm. And what they found is that uh, the parents were making this really unusual, high-pitched, simple call that no one had ever noticed before. And it kind of sounded like... Okay. And they only made this sound when the temperatures were hot outside and also in the final third of the incubation period. So in those final few days when the embryos were about to hatch. And so the, an experiment was run uh, to see, well, if they're making this sound only when the eggs are about to hatch, well, are they talking to the embryos that are in those tiny little eggs? So, so do people look at one of the things, well, one, let me ask this question another way. One of the things I always find fascinating when we, when we look at sounds in nature, whether it's dolphins or so forth, is that what the embryo hears is not what we hear outside. There is a, you know, that, that sound will sound different when they're effectively in fluid. So do, do they look at that, like what the change is and how that works? Well, it's a hard thing to measure, especially in zebra finches, because, I mean, the eggs we're talking about are absolutely yeah. tiny, so maybe the size of your fingernail. Uh, so it's it's hard to to hard to work out whether the embryos are actually hearing that sound or maybe mm. they're detecting them as vibrations. Right. Um, until until recently, it was basically assumed that those tiny little songbirds, because they hatch and they're so underdeveloped, it was always assumed that they maybe couldn't hear at all. 
Uh, and it's only in the last couple of years that uh, research like the stuff that we're doing has shown that their sounds, they are actually responding to these sounds. Uh, um, so what's the what's the deal with these sounds? Why, why are the birds, because it sounds like, well, it sounds like, um, obviously these birds don't use these sounds normally, even after their chicks have hatched? As soon as the chicks hatch, they stop they making stop. this call. So yeah. what are they, what, what's the purpose of the call? Well, uh, an experiment was done a couple of years ago uh, where the eggs were taken away from their parents mm-hmm. and put into an incubator and half the eggs were played this special incubation call. And the other half of the eggs were played just a normal contact call, a sound that the parents might make talking to each other. And what it was found is that the birds that heard this incubation call uh, actually changed their development. And so after they hatched, they grew to be smaller chicks uh, and they also were more likely to make sounds while they were begging for food. So not only was hearing this sound changing how they grew, it was actually changing how they behaved. So so we're talking about behavioural changes and biological changes. Absolutely. Based on an external sound. That, I mean, that sounds extraordinary. Why would there be biological changes based on the, an external sound? Well, if you, uh, if you hear a the incubation call, and you only hear this incubation call when it's hot outside because mm-hmm. that's only when they produce this call. Um, so the chicks that hear this incubation call grow to be smaller, and the theory that we've been working with is that if you're smaller, then you do better in hot temperatures because wow. you're more likely to lose heat to your environment. Wow. So, so where does... Oh, so, sorry, does, so does your PhD now follow on from that? Uh, it is following in from this. So I'm looking at more the cognition side of things. So we know that if you hear sounds while you're an embryo, that, that is probably changing how the brain develops. And this could affect things like behaviour. It could affect things like intelligence. And so what I'm mm. looking at is I have these birds that have heard the incubation call in the egg, and I'm looking at whether that affects how well they learn, how smart they are, and how it affects their singing, for example. Mm. And what's your expectation with that? I mean, it, it seems as though, because I mean, there's such a biological link there with these things, presumably there's other attributes to it as well. Yes, well, there's one study that we're about to publish, and I can't go into too much detail because it hasn't been through peer review yet, uh, but we have found an effect on song learning. So the birds that heard the incubation call inside the egg, uh, they sing differently to those that... Um, well, they learn their songs differently to those yeah. that didn't hear the incubation call. Wow, it's fascinating stuff. Now, um, I wanted to... Oh, Ray, do you, you so, want to jump in? Do, I, I just... Uh, I'm, I'm still amazed by this. Is there a... Do, have you guys have any idea on the biological connection for why they end up smaller? I mean, I understand the heat correlation. That makes a lot of sense. But how does the sound make the bird actually end up growing smaller? That's actually something we're looking into. We're not 100% sure on how that happens. Um, and... So future research hopefully will uh, yield some light on that. Mm. Now, Andrew, before we let you go, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the FameLab contest, which uh, last year you were the runner-up of, right? I was the national runner-up in in Fremantle. Yeah. um, Now, FameLab is... Well, you tell us a bit about the competition because it's something that is a little less known than some of the other competitions, but I've emceed a few of the events and it's fantastic, really good, really good way of communicating. Well, FameLab is basically a science communication competition. So early career researchers have to get up on a stage and then they talk about their research in exactly three minutes and they're not allowed any PowerPoint presentations. All they are allowed is a single prop. So for when when I went up there, I had a tiny replica zebra finch egg oh, that, cool. I sh- that I showed to the audience. Could they see it from a distance? They sound pretty small. <laughs> uh, it was absolutely tiny, and I just kind of plucked it out, my, out of my pocket oh, great. and was making sure I didn't lose it. Yep. Uh, and... 
Yeah, and so the trick is you have to communicate a difficult scientific concept uh, to an audience that perhaps doesn't have a scientific background as well as possible. Yeah, now look, it's it's a fantastic contest. I remember in one of the years when I was the MC here in Melbourne, our own Dr. Lauren was one of the contestants and she had a, a, a sort of mock-up of what someone with a bionic eye would start seeing as, as the bionic eyes became more and more complicated. And I think unlike many of the competitions where people get to use a, an overhead PowerPoint, like you can you can interact with your prop throughout your talk and use it as much as you want. It's, 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 quite, it's quite different. It's fun. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think once you get the hang of talking mm. to a general audience about your research, it, it becomes easier to talk about it in general. Yeah. Now, I think uh, it's still open for um, this year's applications, I believe. So um, Google it, folks. Fame Lab. It is run by the British Council and it's, uh, it's a great competition. So, well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today and, um, and good luck with this research. It would be really great to learn what comes out of this because the idea of so much information being passed on, you know, pre-hatching is, is kind of cool, um, really cool stuff. Thank you very much. Three. Triple. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jessica Miller. She's from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Jessica, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in here. Now, you're working in an area which is just fascinating. I think the whole team, when we saw this, was was really eager to get you in. And it relates to the use of antibiotics during pregnancy and I suppose the, the potential risks and so forth associated with that. So, first of all, let's just talk a bit about the the use of antibiotics during pregnancy how common that is you know how much you see of it um the reasons etc cetera, etc cetera. just give us a bit of a run okay down. um well infections during pregnancy are very common um and many women i would say it's probably about well in our study it was about 20 percent, 18 percent of women were prescribed antibiotics during pregnancy um it is common and Antibiotics need to be taken. If antibiotics are not taken for bacterial infections during pregnancy, it can definitely be life-threatening. Mm. So it's very common. And is that because your immune system changes when you're pregnant? Infection, I mean, the infections themselves are life-threatening towards the fetus. Mm. Um, it, it could be because your immune system is changing, but for various reasons, yeah. you know, they need to be Yeah, and the body, taken. I mean, the pregnant body is doing some serious work so right. every, everything is everything is tougher i think exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly so, um now but there is there is an interaction there in any case where any drug is used um by the mother whether it be alcohol or tobacco or any other drug there is an interaction with the fetus at that time so what's happening with antibiotics so what we were seeing, at, and we can't say from our study, we cannot say what exactly is happening. Mm. We're seeing associations, and that's yep. what we're going off of. Um, but in the study, you know, so you're having an infection, you have an antibiotic. There's a lot of research now on the microbiome. Um, yeah. So this idea that, well, that the child, when the child is born, is getting their microbiome from the mother, and then the idea that the microbiome is educating your immune system later on. So that's really what we were interested in. Um, so you would think that antibiotics during pregnancy are somehow affecting this microbiome. And if they are educating the immune system in the child, then 
you know, if you're having mm. a depleted microbiome, if that's what you're first exposed to, then your immune system later on might somehow be affected by yeah. that. So, so we know, I mean, forgetting pregnancy for a second, mm-hmm. we know that when you, a non-pregnant person, male or female, takes antibiotics, there is an impact on the microbiome, right? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's pretty much solid. solid. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, and what, I mean, what is that impact? Is it, I've, I've always wondered whether it's a, a reduction in diversity of the microbiome or whether it's a reduction yeah. in intensity. I mean, do we know what's happening? That, I, I can't say exactly. That's not my mm. exact field, but that is what's happening. I mean, you have all this good bacteria that's on your body and taking any sort of antibiotic is Kills going to off. knock that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's killing it off. And so, you know, whether it's the amount that's being killed off, the type that's being killed off, I don't know exactly. Mm. But in adults, we affect our microbiome, but... Once we affect it, we're not stuck with that for the rest of our lives. It, it adapts, it grows back, things, things change over time. In, in adults, we know that's the case, I think, right? I mean, right. I'm not saying, I mean, we've heard a lot of research that's suggesting you're inextricably linked between what you eat and the land and where your microbiome is. And I especially like the one about when you travel far distances, you could colonize, yeah. give yeah. bad bacteria yeah, yeah. instead of jet lag. It's your gut bacteria yeah, yeah. getting adjusted. So, so we know there's a lot of changes that happen from our environment. So that's, that's true in adults, right? Correct. Um, And in the child, so the child's being born into, I guess, this naive environment where their immune system is just developing. Um, So if they're starting off and they're being exposed to fewer microbiomes, then, you know, you Mm. would think that this is going to later on affect how their immune system is actually being educated. So in your study, you said that around 20% of those women were prescribed antibiotics. Mm-hmm. What did you then measure? Did you look at the mothers or the children or both? Okay, so our study was, it took place in Denmark um, and we used national registry data for it. So birth registry, hospital registry, and they have a prescription registry. So whenever a prescription is filled at the chemist pharmacy that goes into a registry. So we're able to link all of those registries for each person. And so we can basically make a timeline of the people from pregnancy through childhood and we can see what happens. So we're following them and then we can look and calculate different risks for based on different factors. And so what are the kinds of things that you're most interested in looking at long term? What do you mean? Well, for these children, are you looking for mm-hmm. allergies? Are you looking for asthma? Are you looking for um, autoimmune disease? What, or are you just looking at everything? Like, do you have a focus in terms of what you predict might be, a, might, might be something of interest? So for us, our focus was hospitalization with infection. So we oh, were looking okay. at the hospital registry to get the hospitalizations and if they had a diagnostic code for an infection, that's what we were looking at. There have been other studies um, that have looked a lot at the microbiome specifically and asthma or type one diabetes, but our study focused specifically on hospitalizations with infection. So first, it's remarkable in Denmark you can get all that information about those patients. They must have some type of integrated medical record system that's really effective. Com- computers. Oh, computer. All right. Yeah. If we only could do that here. But aside from that, so it's amazing you can you can track that type of data. Do you then have information on things like other environmental factors, socioeconomic income? Do they, you know... Right. All all the other things that we have in our life. Exactly. So with any study, any sort of association, there are always other factors that 
might affect it. Um, and we are able to collect data on certain things. Um, we used maternal education, smoking status if it, during pregnancy, if that was available, if women chose to report on that, um, maternal age, some things that we were not able to get, you know, whether or not women breastfed, which could help, which could mm. affect the microbiome or mm. your immune system. So when, you, so when you took all those other things into account, was there still a difference? Yes. Yes. Mm. So the 18% increase that we saw took all of those other things into account. Obviously, it did not take everything possible into account. Like, as I said, breastfeeding, we did not have that information. So we weren't able to control for that. But the other factors that we thought were important in the association, it accounted for all of those so, things. And we still saw that 18% increase. Yeah. So so one of the things I, I always try to get a feel for in these sorts of things, because we're talking about risk factors for people, but yes. you know, if you've got a serious infection, you take an antibiotics, it doesn't matter what the risk factors are, you don't have a choice because you actually might die or your exactly. fetus might die. So um, I, I know one of the things I always like to come back to this example but if you said to me, what is the risk of me taking an international flight in terms of the radiation dose I get relative to a CT scan or a chest X-ray or a foot X-ray or this or that or the other or living in, you know, an area of Russia where there's been munitions, et cetera, et cetera. I can give you those numbers and I can give you relative risk. So I can say, yeah, look, have one CT scan and 10 international flights or whatever those numbers are. I can give you that really clearly. When we look at these things, I mean, what sort of range, I mean, you may not have the answer this year, but what sort of range is this risk in relative to things like a parent smoking or a parent drinking during pregnancy or so forth? I mean, this is, is this a really sort of big issue or do you think it's sort of more, you know, in, in, the, in the noise and, and something to be very aware of and to understand, but perhaps you don't put someone into a sort of high-risk category until they're on their third dose of antibiotics during pregnancy or something like that. I mean, do you ever feel for mm. that at this point? I would say at this point, no, we don't necessarily know. More research is definitely mm. needed. Um, and we can't say what exactly is causing it, whether it's the antibiotics and the microbiome. That's just our hypothesis at yeah, this point. Yeah. Um, and that's what the findings kind of lead to, yeah. but it could be that it's something else that we are completely overlooking. It can be, it's possible that's the underlying infection. So more mm. research does need to be done in the in this area. Um, but I can't say at this point. Yeah. So, so know, the message, I, I suspect things. then the message to, you know, any pregnant mum out there is that if you have a runny nose, do not run to your GB for antibiotics. You have a virus <laughs> yeah. most of the time. If you have a bacterial infection, then, hey, you know, you've got to go get that sorted out. But this whole overuse of antibiotics is something that it, just another reason to be more careful about that. Exactly. And that's, you know, I think the main point that we do need to think about prescribing antibiotics responsibly and mm. they need to be used responsibly in all age groups and in pregnancy. And that's the main message, I think, yeah. at this stage. Um and beyond that, of course, just the fact that the microbiome in the next 10 years is going to be the damn space to be in if you're a researcher because it is in 
everything, every second researcher we have in the biomed space at the moment brings that up yeah, because it it's a, affecting everything and it's such a, a key part of our health So, and, and the health that we pass on. So, look, uh, great work, Jessica. It's really interesting great. and Thank I think it would be, be great to see where, where some of this heads because if, if we really are giving a snapshot of our microbiome on a certain day to our, our children when they're born and that then affects them for their whole life, then, um, yeah, that would be interesting to, to work out how we compensate for that. And we do all that. So thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jessica Miller is from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute doing amazing work on antibiotic use during pregnancy. We're going to take a break for some announcements, folks. But before that, uh, something important from Triple R. Today, of course, is Triple R's annual barbecue day. Uh, it's series. Uh, you, you may be confused. Normally it is uh, late in the year, but due to some appalling weather last year, we had to move it. So it's on today from midday till 4 p.m. So when we finish this show, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. It's a live broadcast. Eat It will be there from noon. So Cam is probably, if you've seen his hair, you know it takes hours. He'll be doing it right now. The Greening of the Republic's crew is on from one, and then JBG Radio Method uh, will be bringing it home with the All-Star Melbourne Barbecue Orchestra from 2 to 4 p.m. The Brunswick East Primary School Grillers will be on the barbecue, which... I'm sure I thought Cam be doing that. Um, lazy bugger. And uh, there's You might cat- do a guest turn of the tongs. Yeah, and I love this bit. There's catering for carnivores and vegos. So, yeah, there you go. Um, and I, I don't think they'll be on the same hot plate. I'm sure they'll be separated. <laughs> so don't worry, worry, folks. Have you ever had a veggie topper, veggie burger as a topper on a burger? That was delicious. <laughs> I have a friend of mine who always orders a vegetarian pizza with uh, hot salami. And he says it's because they don't use the cheap ham and everything about the pizza is better quality when you order a vegetarian pizza anyway uh the (laughs) the triple r bar will be there as well and the entry fee now sorry about this folks but it is free um I think yeah, it's free. Uh, so Triple R Barbecue Day. I think you've got to buy is, your own burger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's proudly sponsored by Mountain Goat Beer. Um, series, if you're not sure where it is, it's on the corner of Robertson Stewart Street in East Brunswick, not far from our station. So uh, get on down there at 12. It'll be a lot of fun. And the weather today, I have to say, is perfect because there's no rain and it's not too hot. So it's a, a perfect uh, scenario for Barbecue Day. Three. Triple There you are listening to Triple R. It's going to be barbecue day in about eight minutes, but we've got a little bit of time left to give you some more news. I can smell the snags from here. I, it's like series is around the corner, that wafting kind the of... vegetarian snacks. Yeah, definitely. That beautiful tofu smell coming off the barbecue, crisp, crisp on the outside, sort of marshmallow soft in the middle. Mm, nothing better than a bit of tofu on the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm okay. Um, <laughs> Dr. Ray, have you got some more news for us? I do. I, I have a study out of the Netherlands. It just caught my eye for um, uh, volunteering for science. Uh, the question to you would be Shane, uh, waterborne worm species cause schistomiasis, which is, a, which is a waterborne disease from not having safe drinking water that infects a great number of people in Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. And it, it kills thousands of people each year. And these are water parasites, worms that stick in your body. Uh, there's no great cures for them. There's an inadequate older drug called Pazaquantal. I'm probably killing the name. Sounds good. Um, anyway, to study this, a group in Netherlands has a, it's a controversial study where they have 17 volunteers that volunteered to get infected by Schistosoma masoni, which is one of the five uh, tiny waterborne worms, to get infected to study. And the motivation for this 
is because to develop vaccines, they've done models on hamsters and they've done models on snails, but they really need to, to understand this model better in people. Oh, I think that's because when you think about like parasites, there's a really strong host parasite interaction there, which which can't be repli- replicated outside of the host and the mm. parasite. Now, this study did actually, yeah, and, and that was their, their their main point. And that the, they they of course went through ethics ethics review. And this parasite, they, they did take steps, so they're not trying to debilitate the people involved. Um, as it turns out, of course, there are male and female worms. They set up in your body. You make it. They make eggs, and when the subsequent worms get stuck in your liver and things, that's when you get problems. They're actually only infecting the people with male worms. So they can't, oh, so they breed. can't replicate. They can't replicate. Uh, they went through a, a pretty rigorous ethical screening, but there were still plenty of immunologists and parasite experts that were weighing in to go, I don't know if I'd want my kids to do this. And they're getting about a thousand euros. But it, it's it's not actually, we're starting to see more of this uh, interaction between people and being tested in this way. There's actually, for flu vaccines and a few other things, there was a feature in Science last year talking about using human people, humans for for testing at this level because you can't, to accelerate drug discovery. Mm. Uh, this is a big deal. Waterborne diseases in particular. If you're immunocompromised from a waterborne disease, that means treatment for a lot of other things, including other viruses, can't occur as effectively. And so that's a, a real challenge. If Without clean drinking water, it disadvantages you to take advantage of a lot of the other aspects and, and fruits of healthcare. Mm. Well, it's so. fantastic that 17 people in the Netherlands are sticking their arm out for science and yes. going to get infected with these worms and be able to study their immune systems. Like they will contribute an incredible value, valuable piece of um, knowledge to to schistosomiasis research. They so, usually get bucket loads of cash. Well too. Yeah, no, they, they don't. They, well, you know, they, they, they can't be paid. They can only be compensated for their time. Well, <laughs> it's only it's a thousand euros, so that's thousand euros time. So, and, and the fact so the flu I, challenge labs in the UK, I mean, they pay their subjects well. They pay them well, um, but you are—you you, know—you're you, doing work that potentially is not that comfortable. Hey, in, in Melbourne, at some of the malaria research labs, you can actually go feed mosquitoes. You have to put your arm in the mosquito feed. Not infected ones, but the, you, you put <laughs> your arm right? in the chamber for 15 minutes. We do, minutes. and, and yeah. we actually have um, uh, live human cha- challenge models for malaria in people. So there are people mm. in Queensland who are voluntarily um, being given malaria to do very similar things because it is so hard to get information about that human-to-parasite interaction from any other system apart from the human model. Yeah. yeah. So I really applaud everyone who volunteers for clinical trials. They really give you um, scientists and researchers and society an incredible amount of information and, and I think it's an incredible community service to be part of a community a clinical trial. And in many cases it's actually very beneficial Can to be. you as well. Yeah, Can depending be. on what the trials for. Now we were probably both going to quickly talk about the same thing which was um, the Neanderthal artwork that oh, uh, has been In Spain. Yeah, which is just fantastic. I mean this is stuff that's um, some, more, well more than 64,000 years old. So it was often thought that Neanderthals were just, you know, stupid, like didn't do anything valuable. Um, But this demonstrates that they were probably doing artwork in Spain long before humans got there. The interesting thing about this research, they, they've they've said that these it's the paintings that are 65,000 years old mm. and that predates modern humans' mm. um, in appearance in Europe. Yeah. So it's a little bit, therefore, we think it's Neanderthals. Yeah. There's no direct kind of linkage so there. So it, it could have been a couple of humans wandered across on the boat, but uh, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. And so I think, um, and I think this idea that um, the Neanderthal society was creative and cultural is a new way of thinking mm. about... Um, a, 
about thinking about the Neanderthals and also thinking about, well, what does that mean to be human? Like we've always kind of had this view that, well, humans did everything and Neanderthals just, you know, died out. And it's like, well, actually, maybe there was some, you know, interesting interesting technology and cultural advances that were happening at the same time. And and part of the reason this has just come out now is because this work is really hard. So they, they actually don't use, you often hear the term carbon dating, but carbon dating doesn't work in all situations. And in this case, actually, they use... Uh, something called uranium thorium dating, which is different, and it requires you to get these kind of calcium deposits sitting over the top of these paintings. And so, if you know that one of these deposits has grown on that painting, say 10,000 years ago, then you know that the painting's at least 10,000 years old because obviously it wasn't painted through the deposit. So this is a, a more sophisticated dating technique that is being used more and more these days, which is, is pretty fascinating. Aren't, aren't the, the groups in working in Australia on uh, Aboriginal art paintings, yeah. alt rock paintings, they're actually using these methods to yeah. uranium Yeah, and they can't be used everywhere. So it's only where these calcium deposits occur, and that doesn't occur in all um, circumstances. So you, sometimes you still need to use other dating techniques, but it's just but it, it's to more... Be a, but to be able to date these paintings as more than 65,000 years old um, really says, well, their um, their creators may have been Neanderthal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, And it's interesting just to um, to look at the fact that History may be a lot more complex than what we were taught in schools, kiddies. So um, interesting stuff coming out. Now, we have to hand over to the team from Eat It, who are, are no doubt uh, hanging for the next 50 seconds to pass before the... Cam loves being in control, and I do love handing over to him. So they're down at uh, series today for Barbecue Day, folks. Get on down there. There's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of activities, and uh, it's been a long time coming because it was supposed to be late last year and we had to move it because of the weather. So we're going to leave it there in a moment. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much for coming in. Good it's always you. a pleasure talking science, Dr. Shane. And Dr. Ray, good to see you again. Good to see you too. And I think fun. you're on again next week is that right i think i am yeah, yeah that'll be cool okay we'll see you next week so folks thanks so much for listening to einstein a go-go we are going to hand over now to the team from edit for their live broadcast for triple r's barbecue day we will chat to you again next week thanks for listening to triple r this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.